Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. My name is John Yargo, your host. Today's guest is Susan Stewart, whose book, The Ruins Lesson, Meaning and Material in Western Culture, was published through the University of Chicago Press in 2020. Susan is the Avalon Foundation University Professor in the Humanities at Princeton University, and is the author of the books On Longing, The Poet's Freedom, Nonsense, and Poetry and the Fate of the Senses. Additionally, Susan has written the poetry collections Red Rover, Cinder, and The Forest. The Ruins Lesson is a rich and provocative study of the enduring riddle of ruins in our cultural imagination. This is a book that draws on the vibrant resources of humanistic inquiry, philology, historicism, speculative reasoning, that feels like a vital if indirect contribution to our own understanding of the ongoing COVID pandemic, climate change, and other specters of our doom-scrolling present. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. First, can you discuss the evolution of this project? When did you know you were writing a book about ruin? And did you know from the start that you would draw on such a wide-ranging archive that would include Egyptian inscriptions, Wordsworth, and Piranesi? I've been thinking about ruins for quite some time and from many different perspectives. Uh, In the late 90s, I had an invitation to write something for an issue of the Kenyan Review devoted to American memory. And I decided to write it about an abandoned farmhouse I had played in as a child. I'd been teaching in the summers in Rome for 10 years at that point. And so of course, I'd been thinking also about Roman ruins. And I had a longstanding interest in printmaking and the work of Piranesi. In the same period, I made a list of some other ruins I had visited or seen. The Southern Italian Greek ruins of Segesta, Agrigento, Ostia, Syracusa, and Peston. In England, Tintern, Sarum, and Stonehenge. The Neolithic sites of Bryn Kelly in Wales and Scarab Bray in Orkney. Contemporary American ruins of the South Bronx, Detroit, and here where I live in Philadelphia, where there are many abandoned buildings and blocks. I'd visited the Aboriginal sites of Chaco Canyon, Canyon de Chez, Keats Seal, and Mesa Verde. And later I traveled elsewhere in Europe and Eastern Europe, in Greece and Turkey, and saw other ruined sites and many approaches to restoration or not. I was struck by the varied fates of these places and came to wonder why, prehistoric or historic, they all were considered ruins. You asked too about the materials I included in my book, 
when you look at how much the Egyptians valued the role of the restorer and held to the obligation to maintain monuments to the dead, or think about Wordsworth's interest in ruined and abandoned structures and persons, and consider the centrality of Piranesi to the history of ruins representations in general, and particularly to Roman monuments, which included transplanted Egyptian obelisk and Piranesi's own imitations of their inscriptions and images. All these topics that may seem wide ranging are quite close together. So writing on ruins had been in the back of my mind for a long time. And I worked on this book for 10 years. I'd finished a book about the reception of poetry. That was my book on poetry in the senses and written another about the composing of poetry, the book I called The Poet's Freedom. In this book on freedom, I became very interested in the power of artists and poets to unmake or redo a work or to leave a work incomplete. These practices were very much on my mind and the aesthetics of ruin seemed a vital part of such questions. I didn't set out to give parameters to the examples, but it was important to me to stick to the Western tradition if I was going to critique an attitude that seemed particular to it. Other cultures, for example, Japanese or Chinese or Mayan traditions, have quite different attitudes and approaches to damaged materials or materials that are abandoned from the past. The Ruins lesson is innovative in both the kinds of questions it asks and the kinds of objects of study it addresses. Could you talk about your commitment to interdisciplinary work? When I work, I try to keep my sense of the question before me and pursue whatever domains might be relevant to it. Ruins are so important to so many art forms, and I can't imagine how I could limit a study like this to one discipline or medium. Yet, of course, in many ways, my focus on representation and aesthetics is a limit in itself. For example, I haven't dealt with the politics of conservation policy, the history of nationalism in relation to ruins, or even the later history of photography and ruins. And I've studied ruins that are intelligible as places. These are often places with names that are undergoing some transformations in meaning. I've been drawn to art and not so much to the sphere of ruination or sheer destruction. At the heart of my study is the immateriality of poetry and the immateriality of the knowledge of how to make art. I see scholarship in turn as communal effort and not all the tasks that arise need to be my task. I hope that I can spark some scholarship by others in that regard. Would you sketch out the scholarship that you're engaging with? Uh, which scholars do you consider important precursors to the work you're doing? Um, who are the major interlocutors for you? Well, most of the nonfiction books and works other than poetry that I read in general are in the history of literary criticism and aesthetics, poetics, philosophy, anthropology, and natural history. I also try to grasp developments in science to the degree that I can understand them. For example, books on the cell and bacteria by Paul Nurse and Lynn Margulis or Carlo Rovelli's books on physics. I'm also very interested in process philosophy, both Whitehead's work and more recent uses of it by Isabel Stengers and Bruno Latour. In the case of this book, I wouldn't say I'm sparring with anyone. Polemics um, seem pretty pointless to me. 
But I do intend the book as an antidote to what I think of as the unthinking appreciation of ruins, what sometimes is an aspect of romanticism, and I'd say in its extreme form approaches what is called ruins porn. Ruins generate an excitement that is at times dubious, and I did not want to benefit from enthusiasms for ruins. Like Henry James, I think there's something heartless about such an enthusiasm. I've been fortunate in the reception of the book for I've had thoughtful reviewers who've understood what I've tried to do. I think that leads really well into my next question, which is, uh, I, I view one of the central investments of the ruins lesson is in critiquing what economists have callously called creative destruction or what the tech industry calls disruption, the ways in which ruination is thought to be necessary for progress. How might a humanistic approach challenge or complicate the narratives about ruin that dominate our lives? Well, I'll say some pretty obvious things, but they were important in the background to my book. In, in the most fundamental sense, capitalism demands the monetization of bodily energy. In exchange for wages, the laborer submits to being worn and used. There's a principle of planned obsolescence underlying things and persons throughout this system. Machines are replaced, and so are workers. And those workers whose health has been ruined might then find their bodies subject to the for-profit health and pharmaceutical industries. To my mind, it's a central tenet of humanistic inquiry that individual persons, their lives, their creativity, exist in and for themselves and are beyond utility, as they are also bound up in the fate of all other persons. Accepting the inevitability of death and suffering, doing what we can to endow the end and ends of our lives with meaning, is quite different from living subjected to ruin under the forces of profiteering. The climate crisis has brought the most irrational dimensions of capitalism, the most self-destructive dimensions, to the fore. But they were vividly at work all along in the wage labor system. I've asked you to uh, read a passage from The Ruins Lesson. Um, I, I believe you're going to read an excerpt on the ruined woman trope. Yes, I can read uh, the introduction to that chapter. Um, yeah, that would be lovely. I'll just read this first paragraph. Um, human beings can be agents of the destruction of the built environment. But unless they are suicidal or subjected to an impeding violence, they do not suffer passively the effects of weather and time. They protect themselves through making and building those very forms that will be damaged in times of war. Nevertheless, we do speak of ruined persons and our frames for such figures are more often than not divided by gender. A ruined man is one stripped of his material resources, damaged by fate or circumstances, unable to complete an intended future, yet continuing to exist. A ruined woman may also suffer such a fate, yet the ruin of women has been tied inextricably as well to ideas of women as material and to the cachet of value that is a woman's body, and particularly her virginity and chastity. Wherever women are themselves considered to be material or property, where their sexual and reproductive powers are mediums of exchange, 
the ruin is calculated within such a system and remains tied to the value of their bodies alone. I'd like to talk to you about some of the stylistic choices uh, th that you're making in that passage. You are well known among academic scholars for the beauty of your prose. Um, for instance, Eric Heo in the elements of academic style uses passages from your book on longing as models for well-written academic prose. Um, what, what are the, your values as a crafter of academic prose? And perhaps how are they reflected in the uh, passage that you just read for us? Well, thank you. That was news to me to learn about that book. Uh, but it's not it's really a book. It's a it's a wonderful book for those in academic writing. Yeah. I'm glad I'm glad to know about its existence. Um, but it's not up to me to judge the effectiveness of my writing for others. Um, it's important to me that I write with, with those other persons in mind, often, in fact, specific persons in mind. I, I never feel I'm just producing a text. I'm speaking to others and listening to what others have said before my scene of writing and to what they might say in response. And of course, I approach prose and poetry differently. As I revise, I read both forms aloud with my voice. I say this because neurologists seem to have recently discovered that we actually do read aloud, even if we think we are reading silently. It's just that our larynx isn't producing sound at a level that we can hear. I find this amazing and so interesting for thinking about the production of writing. But poetry is not a kind of writing that I can compose by rationality alone. Poetry involves my physical being from the moment I begin to envision or sense a poem. As far as guidelines go, they have to do with my vices. I always have to edit my tendency to write long, clause-ridden sentences. And I like to have human agents perform human actions. So I always try to avoid the passive voice and the magical thinking that makes it sound as if things are in charge. You mentioned your... Um your desire to avoid causes. But what struck me about the passage was that wonderful sentence where you're talking about the ruined man trope and how in some ways that sequence of clauses like simulates an argument and sort of leading us through um, sort of cause to effect in a, a kind of wonderful way. Yes, I try to pace things and make uh, the time flow at varying, varying rates throughout the course of, of any given paragraph, say. Uh, I think it's important to land on points and not just have them at work in there. Sure. And can we also talk about how your explication of the ruined woman trope fits into the larger um, structure of your book? Yes. Um, this was a topic that I knew I wanted to consider from the first steps of my plans for the book. I remembered uh, Thomas Hardy's comic poem, The Ruined Maid. And maybe you know it. It's a dialogue poem between two women, one who has stayed in a village and one who has left, obviously, to go to a city. Just to give you some sense of it, the second stanza goes like this. You left us in tatters without shoes or socks, tired of digging potatoes and spudding up docks, and now you've gay bracelets and bright feathers three. Yes, that's how we dress when we're ruined, says she. And in each stanza, the, of course, the ruined woman uh, responds in this way, naming herself a ruined woman. So you can imagine how it goes on. As in much of Hardy's work, the apparent comic tone masks something tragic. 
he was much concerned with the theme of the ruined woman and women's independence. We can th- picture um, Tess's final moments as Stonehenge, for example. I didn't end up writing on that poem, but as I began to think about how virginity and chastity are tied to ruins, I came to realize how key women's fidelity and sexuality were to stories of the destruction of cities in the Hebrew scriptures. And I began to read as much as I could find about the history of the Christian cult of Mary, the Virgin Mary, and later the place of Mariolatry in Christian history and its position uh, during the iconoclastic um, campaigns of the Reformation. At the same time, I saw many connections between the Mary cult with its flower and well imagery and the classical traditions of the Vestal Virgins as they hold up the integrity of Rome. And I also was engaged in thinking about the association between nymphs and life-giving springs and streams. I'd like to ask you about the role of Rome in the um, sort of creative uh, imagination around ruins. Um, I circled this line in your book, Rome's, quote, corpse of greatness. Um, What is the role of Rome in uh, ruin thinking? Well, it's true that Rome's ruins came to dominate the sensibility of uh, ruins appreciation in the West. Um, and this is partly just because of the availability of Rome as a place to travelers. Um, and uh, by the early 16th century, uh, various artists, um, painters, printmakers were coming to Rome um, to make representations of the ruins. But earlier than that, by the fourth century, Christian pilgrims and travelers were regularly going to Jerusalem and Rome. Some went to Jerusalem through Salonika and others sailed from Venice, but reaching Rome was of course easier. And Roman structures were pondered and allegorized by early church fathers. Um, often that you would see Roman ruins in the background of nativity scenes, um, and you have this idea of the new birth, new growth coming out of the old ruined world. And that's a motif of ruins, literature, and art throughout history, this notion of new life growing. Um, It became very important to me as a kind of allegory of the crisis in nature in our own time. but they're also at the same time, church fathers used uh, Roman structures for building. And there was a whole process of spoliation of incorporating earlier buildings into newer buildings. And gradually, um, with humanism uh, in the Renaissance, legal protections developed uh, for ancient buildings. Um, so this played a huge role, in, as you know, in the development of humanism and was inspiring for the pres- preservation of ancient texts um, and the renewed study of the classical world. Eventually, in the 17th century and forward, the academies of various, the French academy, um, for example, were established. Um, and then there was a whole discourse uh, and commerce around representations of ruins. So there's a tremendously um, complex and interesting history um, that's not only tied to the destruction of Rome um, by barbarian invasion, or what's called barbarian invasion. 
one of the things you, you chart in the book is the role of printmaking um, and how material culture is, is so um, central to thinking about um, ruin culture. Um, it, can you uh, talk us through uh, um, that um, scholarly contribution you're making? Yes, I mean, this was part of the idea of um, of traveling to Rome um, to make images. Um, and and of course, printmaking was all about making copies and having multiple copies. And there was a great deal of piracy, um, as well as copying within uh, uh, establishments for printmaking. You write about Piranesi, and it, it might be helpful for our listeners uh, to sort of learn who this figure was and how he fits in with this longer history you're telling about the, the cultural imaginings of ruin. Well, Piranesi was a Venetian. He was born in 1720. And if you look at the legacy of his career, you'd have to extend it all the way to the period of the French Revolution when his sons moved uh, the archive of his prince uh, to Paris. Um, later, that archive came back uh, to Rome, where you can visit it today and see his copper plates. Uh, Piranesi was an artist of tremendous inventiveness um, in, in the sense both of of advancing the possibilities of printmaking, everything from connecting it to the, the three-dimensional effects of, say, carving to new ways of representing clouds uh, in printmaking, working uh, with tremendous facility as a draftsman. Um, he took great pride in visiting ruins and measuring them. Uh, he bitterly critiqued the measurements of anyone else who might have <laughs> come near the ruins he was talking about. Um, and he also had a huge influence on uh, the appreciation and representation of ruins in other, um, by others, especially by the, um, the Adams brothers, the Scottish um, artist, architect brothers. Um, Piranesio was an amazing intellectual in the sense that he was engaged by uh, problems of representing the imagination, representing the unseen um, with his prison series or his um, grotesque. He showed worlds that we could describe as mental worlds uh, at the same, and you can see that's in great contrast to this obsession with accurate measurement, which had been the preoccupation of other printmakers in Rome uh, who preceded him. Um, and he also had a kind of unusual agenda, political agenda. Um, his works were not particularly religious. Um, he also often represented um, people who were alienated or disenfranchised from the culture and the shadows of his ruins. Um, and he really wanted to reawaken a sense of the magnificence of Roman culture, uh, not simply in its monumentality, but also in its generosity toward public space. Uh, that was one of the ways that he conceived of his project. He also, for a long time, pursued an idea about the Etruscan origins of Roman architecture. He was from a family of stonemasons and architects, um, so he had a, a very deep knowledge of how buildings were uh, constructed, and not just buildings, but lots of public works as well. Um, 
he was a person of terrible temper, apparently. Um, but uh, uh, with, I think, one of the great visionaries of ruins, along with other figures like Goethe and William Blake, um, people who saw in ruins a chance to reimagine the world and to rebuild the world. I like to ask guests how their scholarship fits in with their teaching. Do you teach the material in this book? Uh, how is teaching influenced your thinking and writing about ruins? Well, I actually have not taught a course on ruins. Um, I try to teach what my students most seem to need. And so my teaching usually is centered in the history of poetry and poetics or poetry and philosophy and the history of criticism. Um, I have enjoyed teaching the long history of pastoral forms, um, which of course starts with uh, the classical tradition um, and early idols and eclogues and has gone all the way to become a vivid topic in contemporary poetry and environmental criticism. And I'm sure that that teaching um, influenced my writing on ruins um, because I became particularly interested in the ways that nature shapes and overcomes ruined forms. And finally, I'd like to ask you what's next. I know, uh, you know, this book, uh, after 10 years of, of labor, was published re relatively recently, um, 2020. But have you given thoughts to your next project? Well, yes. Um, I'm finishing a new book of poems now. And I'm deep into my next prose project. Um, it's a brief and more speculative book that I'm calling Poetry's Nature. And it's concerned with poetry as a living form, an art that involves rhythm as well as measure as it unfolds in time. And I first have an obligation to deliver four lectures on the topic this May uh, at Oxford. And then I have next year to shape the volume. Excellent. We will look forward to both of those projects. Thank you so much, Susan, for joining the podcast. Thank you.